From the American Tobacco Historic District in downtown Durham, this is Due South on WUNC. I'm Leonida Inge. And I'm Jeff Tabiri. Mildred Mama Dip Council opened her Chapel Hill restaurant in 1976. As the years passed, the notoriety of Mama Dip's kitchen grew. But today, the family is preparing to sell the building and the land around it. The community wants to know what's next. I would like to see more restaurants with traditional foods like Mama Dips uh, because there are some of us who, like I said before, grew up in this community and, and look forward to a good piece of fried chicken <laughs> and not chicken strips. Well, Jeff, I spoke with Kathy Atwater and members of Mama Dip's family for the podcast Gravy, produced by the Southern Foodways Alliance. That's coming up later this hour. But first, a conversation with the founding director of the Southern Foodways Alliance, John T. Edge. He's the author of The Pot Liquor Papers, A Food History of the Modern South. And John T. is host of the television show True South, streaming on ESPN. True Southlands in Scott, Louisiana. The buckle on the boudin belt that stretches across Cajun country. We get greasy. We get happy. You will, too. You know, John T., I would like to say we go back a long ways, but I think I just think we go back a long ways. That Because um, I think we've always dedicated ourselves and our work to just sticking straight with what Southern what Southern food, what Southern culture, and kind of making the rest of the folks in America respect that. Would you agree? I, I'm curious about the South, and, and that began with my boyhood in Clinton, Georgia, and continues through to my life here in Oxford. And, and that I think that curiosity is inexhaustible. Um, and I love talking to a fellow traveler like you. Well, when we think about the South are one way that the South exists um, in our like national consciousness. Um, it's really through food. Do you think Southern food can be defined in that way, you know, as a culture? I think back here, back home, we believe that. Yeah. I mean, I think food is a product of people in place. And in the South, food is a talisman. It says, this is where I'm from. This is what my people eat. Um, I think food is as important to understanding the culture of the South as is literature, as is music. So, yeah, I'm in. You're in. I think I've heard you say, really, Southern food is Americana. It's not just in the South anymore. You can find it all over the country. You know, does that dilute our culture at all? No, I think for the longest time, America thought about the South as some kind of isolate, as an exception to the American experience. And in fact, um, you know, the South is America writ smaller. Um, and I think our food travels really well. If you travel um, to New York City, um, you can now find pretty darn good biscuits. If you travel to San Francisco, you can now find pretty darn good barbecue. Um, I don't think that's a loss. I think that's a gain for the South. Music that begins in the South, um, whether that's, um, you know, um, Thelonious Monk or Elvis Presley, it's long traveled well. Why shouldn't food travel well, too? Well, food should travel well, and I definitely test everybody's 
shrimp and grits at every corner of the country you know that I travel I'm like let's see what they're doing with their shrimp and grits you know what part of the south are they taking you know this recipe from yeah I'm a big critic but I I wonder though and have always worried if the south and the people of the south and the cooks of the south many people of color if they're getting any credit for this though I think I think that's the big question is as interest in Southern food escalates and as people across the nation and across the world adopt Southern food as their own, no matter their birthplace, you know, do they learn the names of the cooks? Can they tell you the hometown of Edna Lewis? Um, can they tell you who Mama Dip was, you know, do they know the stories? Because that's key to knowing Southern food is to knowing the stories of the women and the men, uh, many people of color who for the longest time got little or no, no credit for their work. So at a moment when we want to celebrate Southern food, um, it's deeply, profoundly important that we celebrate the cooks who came before us. In your travels, have you come across new Southern-based soul food type restaurants? I just wonder, where are we right now? Because I, you know, I know of a family, you mentioned Mama Dip, uh, Mildred Council, where her family, you know, they're going to close down um, Mama Dip's restaurant and, and try to birth something else, you know, to extend that legacy. I mean, I think there are like three or four trends at work. Um, there's this kind of ongoing rediscovery of the roots of Southern food, um, whether that's the roots of the ingredients or the roots of the stories. Um, there's also an expansion of ideas about what Southern food is. Um, and that's, you know, Vietnamese cooks doing Cajun crawfish on the Gulf Coast is now Southern too. Um, there's also this commodification of Southern food going on, wherein people like Sam Jones, you know, are busting out of Aden and um, showing up in Raleigh and, you know, in Biscuitville, which I really admire, um, is slinging really darn good biscuits at interstate off-ramps. Um, so I think all of those different trends can coexist, Right. You know, I was joking around with one chef and, um, you know, sometimes when we think of Southern food, sadly, we think of food so rich, you know, fattening, maybe not healthy, maybe a little bit too much pork in it. And he said, you know, I have to have a little something for those vegetarians out there, you know, and especially because in the South, so many different people are moving here from other parts of the country. You sort of have to feed their tastes too. So I wonder if there's any you know, special vegetarian kind of soul Southern places that you um you can think of? I, I'm more interested, well, I, I won't say it that way. I'm as interested in kind of vegetable forward cooking as I am in vegetarian cooking, especially in the summer. Like, you know, in Mississippi in July and August, I want to eat an all okra diet um, with maybe some butter beans on the side. You know, and, and that is healthy food, but it's not like prescriptive food. I'm not saying I'm going to eat a vegetarian diet. I'm eating what's coming in at the farmer's market 
um, in my town. And, and I think that's what Southern food has long looked like. It's looked like the crops that come up in the place where you live. And I think a return to that sort of eating, which we're in the midst of now, is important. I think about somebody like Eric Williams um, in Chicago with his restaurant Virtue. Um, I can still taste the rutabagas I ate there. Um, and this is a, you know, a black owned restaurant in, you know, in Chicago, a chef with roots in Mississippi, interpreting the, the foods of black Southerners in Chicago, cooking like the best rutabaga I've had in, a, you know, eons. And I think that's the one thing I don't eat a rutabaga. Whoa, oh, whoa, my. What's wrong? Oh. Oh, Lena, we, we'll get you some therapy, girl. Okay, because I eat it just, just about everything. <laughs> rutabaga. I love rutabagas. I don't know. I can eat black-eyed peas and all day, every day. Me too. What do you think when people call, like, southern food hipster food now? You know, it's like kind of... When I drive around the town where I live, you know, Durham, North Carolina... You know, it's changing before my eyes. I mean, you know, you have million-dollar condos everywhere. I can't live there. The people who've been here for eons can't live there. And the restaurants, you almost can't even afford to eat there. There's Southern food in there, but um, I almost can't even go get um, a glass of wine and whatever they have on that menu. I'm like, wow, this isn't for me anymore. It's for a new group of people with a lot of disposable income. Well, I, I think for the longest time, Southern food and Southern culture more broadly was devalued. And now that there's increased value placed upon it, you know, some of the tensions that come out of that are gentrification and, and uh, rising costs and the like. If Southern food is now... Um, relevant on a national and international stage, and I believe it is, then lots more trends are coming this way, you know. But so is a lot of vitality and change and dynamism. You know, when I moved to Oxford, Mississippi in 1995, the kind of money dish of this town um, was shrimp and grits at City Grocery. Um, today, I'd argue that the money dish um, in Oxford, um, the dish that, you know, the students want to order when their parents are paying um, is um, okra chot at snack bar cooked by Vishwish Bhatt. Um, you know, that shows the dynamism of food culture um, in Oxford. And, and I think it's reflected all across the South. Um, you know, if I'm up your way, I'm as likely to clamor for a table at Chidi Kumar's new restaurant as one of Ashley Christensen's new restaurants. Um, and, and I seek out a restaurant like Chidi's not because I'm seeking out something different from my experience, but because I'm seeking out great food and great community and all those things are possible at her table. Well, I'm hungry and I know what I'm going to do <laughs> when we wrap this up. And thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. It's always fun to talk to you. You're a smart and kind soul. John T. Edge is the author of The Pot Liquor Papers, a food history of the modern South. And you can catch him hosting the television show True South on ESPN. I spoke with him from his home in Oxford, Mississippi. Coming up, Mama Dip's Legacy. 
You're listening to Do South. Thank you for calling Mama Dips. How can I help you? Welcome back to Do South. If you are hungry and ask locals where to get a good old-fashioned country meal in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, they will likely point you toward Mama Dip's Kitchen. The late Mildred Mama Dip Council opened her restaurant in the mid-1970s. Nearly 50 years later, the council family has voted to sell the restaurant and the land where it sits. It is a big move for the town's oldest Black-owned restaurant. My Due South co-host, Leonita Inge, takes us to Chapel Hill, where a second and third generation of African-American family cooks work to make sure Mama Dip's legacy lives on. This story was produced for the Southern Foodways Alliance podcast, Gravy. Business is brisk this particular Friday in June during lunchtime at Mama Dip's Kitchen. Sissy Council Green is especially busy. She's taking orders over the phone and greeting in-house guests almost at the same time and by name. Hey, Miss Susan, how you doing? Okay, all right, what can I get for you today? Uh, We have zucchini, is that fine? Okay. Sissy Council Green is one of Mama Dip's granddaughters. She got married in 2000, left the homestead, and had children. Sissy and her family returned home almost 20 years later. She's keeping real busy. You want cornbread biscuit or roll? Okay. I'm gonna put everything on the side for you, okay? Yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I know, I know how you like it. I'll fix it up for you. You want any dessert today? Well, I would certainly like some dessert. Today's offerings are peach cobbler, and the cake of the day is vanilla butter cake. All the cakes at Dips are made by Sissy's mother, Sandra Council. There's a reason Sissy is taking so many orders over the phone. Some customers continue to prefer to order their food for carryout. Sissy has the perfect personality to run the front room. And she says she's glad she moved back to town in 2019, a year after Mama Dip, the founder and face of the restaurant, died. Mama Dip used to sit out front and greet the customers. Her cookbooks, sauces, and family cake mixes and cookies were always on display for sale, not far behind. Sissy says Mama Dip was a star. She's known everywhere. I don't care where I've lived. I lived in Kansas. I lived in Georgia, Louisiana, Virginia. Somebody in that state has eaten. No, my grandmother have been to the restaurant. (laughs) Mama Dip could cook. She spent years feeding the University of North Carolina community, working in cafeterias and fraternity houses. Here's Mama Dip in 1994. Because I've always, I've loved cooking. It was in my blood, you know. Well, there was no problem for me getting a job cooking. Not at all. Uh-uh. Mama Dip was an astute businesswoman who left her family financially sound after her passing, rarely the case for small family-owned businesses like restaurants. 
That's why for many folks, it was a surprise when the council family announced it was selling Mama Dip's kitchen, which includes the building and the land, not the Mama Dip's business or the brand. The early asking price was $3.6 million. Corn, bread, and butter beans, and you across the table, eating them beans and making love as long as I am able. Horn, corn, and cotton too, and when the day is over, ride the mule and cut the fool and love again all over. Goodbye, don't you cry, I'm going to Louisiana. Buy coon dog and a big fat hog and marry Susiana. Same song, ding dong, I'll take a trip to China. Corn, bread, and butter beans, then back to North Carolina. Mama Dip had eight children. The baby of the bunch is Spring Council, who always maintained a close relationship with her mother. At 66 years old, she has her mother's kind demeanor and her height, 6'2". If anyone could explain the family's decision, it's Spring. But first, a little background. Before there was Mama Dip's kitchen, Spring's mom and dad, Joe Council, worked for his parents at Bill's Barbecue in Chapel Hill. When she first opened uh, um, Dip's Country Kitchen when it first started, it was just the two of us. Actually, she was at Bill's Barbecue with my dad, and then she decided to leave the business and leave him, and then she went and opened uh, dips, country kitchen, and I was still working for my dad. And then once I was at work, and I sort of thought about my mom down the street by herself. And the next day, I went down and, and sat with her. Having grown up in restaurants around Chapel Hill, Spring knows the industry better than anyone. I've pretty much been uh, working all aspects of the restaurant business, from washing dishes to bookkeeping, uh, doing our social media, building our website. And then been close to my mom, learn how to cook uh, on, on her wings. Just like her mom, Spring can run a restaurant, and she can cook. I asked her to tell me her favorite thing to cook that Mama Dip taught her. What I like to cook is, you know, braised beef short ribs. And uh, that's one of the things that when I was a kid, I used to always beg her to make it when a holiday came around. When we knew have a special meal, I said, Mom, please, please make this. But at the restaurant, I would say the chicken and dumplings. Chicken and dumplings has always been a mainstay on the menu, for good reason. Maybe the loss of such a delicacy was going through folks' heads when the council family announced the restaurant was for sale. Spring says her phone was ringing off the hook. She heard from friends and from officials with the town of Chapel Hill. Spring has been interviewed by a dozen reporters and a blogger with the Chapel Hill Carborough Foodies, where news spread fast. And there were thousands of story views and hundreds of audio downloads on the story I produced for North Carolina Public Radio. Earlier this year, the eight council siblings and two of the grandkids voted on whether to put the building up for sale. When the yeses won, they started thinking about the future of Mama Dips and an entirely new business model. Yeah, we're looking going back to uh, going to fast casual. So my grandfather restaurant and the restaurant that my parents took over, Bill's Barbecue, that was a fast casual restaurant. So we do have experience in that. And looking at the fast casual, it sort of reduced the amount of staff you're going to need. And then it reduced our menu uh, to the most popular items so that we can easily train people to prepare the food and we can step back. And rather than people 
sit down on the table, place an order, go up to the counter and order their food and, you know, wait at the table till it's ready. Uh, may have some items they can pick up right away and take to the table to eat off or carry out. So what are you going to miss about that spot in Chapel Hill on Rosemary? I mean, once it's gone and you're not cooking there and greeting people and serving anymore? Uh, you know, your mama's presence and then, and the, and the customers, greeting the customers because, you know, that, you know they work, our friend, we work so much, you know, six days a week. Uh, and so when people came into the restaurant, we befriended them and they befriended us. And so that's where our conversation was coming from. So I miss our customers, of course, mama's presence in the building. You know, you sound like her. <laughs> Do people tell you that? I, yes. <laughs> You've been listening to Mama Dip's Legacy from the podcast Gravy. Due South co-host Leonita Inge continues the story of Mildred Council's family and friends and the future of Mama Dip's kitchen once it closes. We'll also get to meet Erica Council and her bomb biscuit company in Atlanta. And then the story wraps up with voices from the community in Chapel Hill. The future of Mama Dip's Kitchen Family Restaurant is not clear. When word got out the council family was selling the place, inquiries and offers started pouring in. It could be a year before we know what's next for that piece of property. But that hasn't slowed down the council family and the businesses that continue to flourish, in many ways guided by Mama Dip's entrepreneurial touch. As of this recording, seven months after the property was listed, it is still for sale. And for now, Mama Dips is still open. Meanwhile, several other members of the extended council family have made names for themselves as culinary entrepreneurs. Daughter Annette Nisi Council has a line of red velvet and pound cake mixes. Granddaughter Tanya Council has a longtime cookie business and is currently opening up her own shop in Chapel Hill. And granddaughter Erica Council owns Bomb Biscuit Company, an Atlanta restaurant. Her new cookbook, Still We Rise, made Food & Wine Magazine's top new cookbooks list for summer 2023. She also sits on an advisory board for the Southern Foodways Alliance. In August, Erica traveled to North Carolina, to the Farrington Barn in Chatham County for a talk and book signing. Oh, and for a tasting. Farrington Catering Manager Andy Yankoglu runs down the offerings. So we have our angel biscuit right here, um, and it is made with yeast, and that's how it's kind of big and fluffy like that. Um, Really, really fluffy, awesome, soft biscuit. Um, Next up, we have our afternoon. Erica's Bomb Biscuit Company restaurant opened during the pandemic after several successful pop-up events. It started out in a small 350-square-foot space, Today, it's in a 2,500-square-foot spot, growing and thriving. Erica describes her new book about her fluffy, savory, and sometimes sweet biscuits as a love letter to the Southern biscuit. She honors all the black female bakers and chefs who got those hot biscuits to the table. That includes relatives on both sides of her family. 
I think what inspired me the most definitely on my mom's side of the family, my granny was what he called those church lady cooks. And, you know, all the people who were able to cook in the church kitchen were great, phenomenal bakers, you know, cookers, anything they could make. And I know I just wanted to be in that kitchen. I wanted to feel, you know, create that same type of warmth and um, comfort that they did. And But really any kind of bread baking, quick breads to sourdough to all those are things that fascinate me and things I've always kind of worked at. It was like, I'm going to master this. And then it's just, you know, from that, it just kind of just stuck with me and I just kept, kept baking. In the book, Erica writes she wants to embody the spirit of Black entrepreneurship, following the African-American bakers she honors. For her, that means welcoming everybody to the table, just as her grandmother, Mama Dip, was known to do. She was an, an icon, still is, iconic figure in and of itself. And I think, you know, even now when I hear people talk about African-American chefs and culinary icons, I, I don't hear her talked about enough um, when it comes to the accomplishments she made. She had a restaurant, she owned the land, you know, and things like that. So I think seeing that and just growing up around that, not just her, but all her children are very entrepreneurial. My Aunt Spring, my Aunt Nisi, my cousin Tanya with all her endeavors. So it just, you know, that sort of lives on, I think, in all of us. Come on, come on. Right across the street from Mama Dip's kitchen is First Baptist Church of Chapel Hill. Reverend Rodney Coleman is the pastor of this historically black church, whose history dates back to 1865. Reverend Coleman has spent the last 10 years at First Baptist. He still remembers his first visit to Mama Dip's. I learned of Mama Dip's when I first arrived to Chapel Hill. That particular day, uh, Miss Council was there. Mama Dip was there. I got a chance to meet her, got a chance to meet her daughters and begin to eat. And oh, I ate. Reverend Coleman enjoys eating salmon patties when he visits Dips for breakfast and for dinner. Smothered chicken. Oh, my gosh. So that's when my soul food piece comes in. That smothered chicken, gravy. That's one of the go-tos. Many of our members love their fried chicken and their chitlins. Reverend Coleman says he can't imagine Chapel Hill without a Mama Dips. Of course, it makes me feel sad because uh, Chapel Hill still, in my opinion, does not have a lot of, you know, black owned businesses, particularly of, of that longevity. So to, to see that come to an end in this era, you know, is, is quite bitter, you know, bitter. Uh, I hope there's a sweet side to it. I hope there there may be an opening of, a, of another establishment of sort. But it's, it's pretty sad to me. Whenever I make it by Mama Dip's kitchen, I usually get the chicken Reverend Coleman spoke so fondly about. It doesn't matter if it's baked, fried, or smothered in gravy, preferably over rice. I like the chicken. Kathy Atwater is a community advocacy specialist and a lifelong resident of Chapel Hill's North Side. Aaron Nelson is president of the Chamber for the Greater Chapel Hill Carborough. They like the chicken, too. You know, when she said the chicken and dumplings, I went there also. Uh, But fried chicken here is fabulous. The barbecue is just magic. And then the choice of the sides, it always takes us a little while, right? Mm -hmm. Because you're staring and you're thinking. So I picked out some coleslaw and black-eyed peas, and I'm happy to share. Thank you, please. Oh, no, thank you. No vinegar. Mm -hmm. 
Ah, hot sauce. On it. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> so eat up. Our meal was served on plates with side dishes and serving bowls. And yes, we shared the cornbread and the okra. And like at any family dinner table, the conversation continued. I asked them what they thought when they heard Mama Dip's land was for sale. What we were most curious about is the business going to stay. Were they just going to sell the building, keep the business here? Are they looking for a new location? Um, I'm happy to hear that they do have plans. For Kathy, the news was big and personal. It was a shock um, to me and probably most of the community who grew up knowing the councils. Um, I myself graduated with Annette Council and grew up with the family. Um, so it was a shock. And as has been said, just having their food be here for decades and feeling like we won't have that opportunity anymore, but I'm glad to hear that they are still going to keep the food coming. I'm going to miss eating at Mama Dips with its country cooking. While reporting this story, I've wondered, can a restaurant like Mama Dips be out of style for a southern college town like Chapel Hill, where newcomers might not be that southern? Is there still a taste, a place for a restaurant like this one? Aaron thinks there is, but it's going to be an evolution, and that's okay. It will be um, organic collard greens, but I still think that we will serve them and that this Southern tradition will continue. I don't think businesses like this close sometimes because business wasn't good. I think business could be really good. Sometimes you just can't find anybody else to take it on, and the people who run them have done their work, and they now get to enjoy their retirement. I asked Kathy if she had thought about what should go on the Mama Dips land next. I hope it's another restaurant because, as Aaron was saying, you know, soul food doesn't go out of style. And I would like to see more restaurants with traditional foods like Mama Dips uh, because there are some of us who, like I said before, grew up in this community and, and look forward to a good piece of fried chicken. <laughs> and not chicken strips. It sounds like Mildred Mama Dip Council created a cooking dynasty in the South, and we can't wait to find out what's next. That segment was part of a recent Gravy Podcast episode produced by my co-host, Leonita Inch. Special thanks to the Southern Foodways Alliance. Up next, it's about dad time, micro dates, and balance at home. You're listening to Do South. I'm Jeff Tabiri. It's about dad time on WUNC. I'm gathering again with Mark Shen, dad of a preschool daughter and a second grade son, and Ben McKeon, papa to three-year-old twins. We're just three late 30s, early 40s dads navigating the hilariously exhausting, joyful waters of fatherhood. And 
we are not doing it alone. Each of us is married. Today, we're zeroing in on balance, relationship maintenance, cultivation. Dare I call it survival? So all the things, and I'm not going to be able to list all of them, and you're going to go, you're forgetting an obvious one, but like there's the housework, the grocery shopping, making of the lunches, laundry, drop-offs and pickups, handling the tantrums. Uh, There are bedtimes. There's bath. How do you approach it? Just how do you all divvy it up? Yeah, we try to have a plan. I mean, um, Audrey's very good about having intuition about what the kids need to eat. She does the vast majority of meal planning, grocery shopping, and preparing meals, certainly during, during the week. I do more of like the laundry and the managing medical appointments and communicating with teachers and basically like education, medical, and finances is something that I do. And that kind of plays to, um, and we just try to play to our strengths. Do y'all keep score? Is there a scoreboard? Or, or have you learned to stop? Whatever it may be. I've done all these breakfasts. Are you doing dinner? Like, have you have you worked through that uh so-called I'm using the term scoreboard here, which I think is nothing but nothing but trouble if you if you venture down that path. Yeah. Um this this is a moment where I feel like I should admit that I the I could do better. Yeah. Um with letting about, go of the scoreboard no, or okay. No, ye, no, with putting some points on the board. <laughs> okay. Um th- that's not to say that we have a scoreboard necessarily, but I often am working on nights and weekends. My my wife has a, you know, 9 to 5 job as it were. Even before kids, we would often not see each other during the day until, you know, we we would we would sleep next to each other and uh the, then we wouldn't see each other until we mm-hmm you know, we're back in the same bed. So, so I, I have ADHD and th- I don't mean to use this as sort of an excuse for not being helpful, but there are certain tasks that can get overwhelming to me that are just not overwhelming to someone who doesn't have that experience. What's an example? Uh, some, someone who doesn't have ADHD. Um, making lunch boxes. Mm-hmm cooking meals. I mean, I mean, it's, it sounds rudimentary. It sounds mm. like these things ought to be extremely simple, but when my stress level is already extremely high, yeah, it's an obstacle. So my wife ends up doing a lot of these sort of tasks that require working memory. <laughs> so yeah, uh, scoreboard. I don't know if we have it. I think I probably have one in the back of my head. I don't know if she has one in her head. And I guess this is just kind of a moment where I uh, admit that I could probably do better. Well, I, I want to call back to something, Mark, that you have, I think, addressed in some of our different conversations, which is giving yourself space to fail, to understand that we're not perfect, and recognize that there are super dads, there are they're all different kinds of dads, and you can only you got to be yourself, right? Like you have to you have to recognize and achieve that on some level. As it pertains to this conversation, I think that the, the notion of like a 50-50 household, I, I, I wouldn't dare say we have a 50-50 household. I, like, I, I don't even know what the numbers are, but I think that the expectations can become troublesome or, or distracting with some of this stuff. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, it's never 50-50. I, I don't know how you, one would quantify 50-50, but at least in our household, we just try to split right. in some way or divide 
tasks or needs that work for us. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I just want to also say, like, I don't really have any of the answers, right? No, right <laughs> I mean, right. Yeah. The, the, you know, this is obviously not an advice column or Mm-mm, segment no. that we're doing. And, and so the way that we try to operate, you know, works a lot of the times, but a lot of times it doesn't work. Right. And we're still constantly striving for the best way to do things. And I mean, we're very grateful for couples counseling. Yeah, um, We've gone to couples counseling ever since we first had kids. So the last seven years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, our approach to counseling has always been proactive or preemptive. And the idea was to like set up a foundation before things get really stressful and before things become a uh, quote unquote like problem. And so really early on when our son was a newborn, you know, seven years ago, we started going to couples counseling. And w- what we recognized was just like the lack of sleep and the sleep deprivation and being a new parent started chipping away at like our communication styles. And and Audrey and I have always very been for like the 10 years that we were together before having kids, we were always very good communicators. And that was a big strength of our relationship. And we realized that like having our first child with lack of sleep and stress eroded that communication um, or that communication style, just being more short with each other, more curt with each other. Um, and so we found a great couples um, counselor and we've been going to couple counseling ever since. And that's honestly where we work through like a lot of um, a lot of strategies before things become a big problem. Right. You got to cut it off at the pass. Yeah, yeah, I do. Or try to. Yeah. And that's not to say, I mean, we certainly do have, um, you know, big arguments. And then then that session that week is around that, you know, specific topic yeah. or whatever the source of that argument was. Um, but we've been very grateful for that. I mean, sort of like this, the idea of trying to be more proactive around it and, you know, rather than like reactive. And it's been the same way with individual counseling as well. Then how has your communication with Mallory shifted, been challenged um, with, with kids? At the risk of sounding a little overdramatic, I mean, everything is just upended. And I don't mean necessarily in a bad way. It's not like everything was destroyed. But, you know, having twins in March of 2020, when we were already, you know, uh, incomprehensibly stressed and then the, the 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 responsibility of caring for newborns in that time just it was survival um and and the only way to survive was sort of to to put our heads to the ground and make sure these babies lived <laughs> mark I, w- I wanted to say i appreciate you mentioning that couples counseling uh especially in in the in in terms of it being proactive um, my, my parents got divorced when I was 16. My experience of couples counseling was something that happened at the end. And in, you know, my parents case, it did, didn't work. It right? wasn't, it wasn't proactive. It was reactive it was, and it was too late. It was, uh, it was tossing the life preserver out desperately mm-hmm. when everybody's already drowning. Yeah. Um, and, um, I think I've been um, anxious. I've been nervous about it. It 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 has this sort of um, morbid connotation to me. Um, so the idea of of approaching, whether it's counseling or even just d- discussing, but especially counseling, 
um, as a proactive measure, as a thing you do because you value your relationship rather than because you're trying to salvage something right. is, uh, is really helpful to hear. Yeah. yeah. And so my parents, um, divorced when I was about 18 and, and, you know, I, I think that it used to be the case where couples counseling or even also just mental health therapy in general was taboo. And I just think that we either need to flip the script or I, I think a large degree that the script is already flipping. Um, you know, the idea that like, if, you know, if someone heard that like Mark and Audrey are going to couples counseling, they might immediately <gasps> assume that there's something right. that their marriage is on the rocks. And right. I think that we just got to change that narrative. Um, and it's part of the reason why I think Audrey and I are very vocal yeah. about that we go to couples counseling and that I go to individual counseling. Um, and I think partly it's, you know, that we both work in the mental health field. Um, and I don't mean this to be like preachy. I'm just sharing my own experience. Um, I just think it's extraordinarily beneficial or has been for me and for our relationship. And I think the more we talk about it and and remove its negative connotation, and to be something like proactive, um, just like our physical health. I mean, we do a lot of things to promote our physical health um, that is proactive. Um, and I, I just, I think a lot of us believe that it should be the same for for our mental health. I'll, I'll step into it a bit here, which is to say, no, I don't go to therapy. I would benefit from going to therapy. And we, we as a couple would benefit from going to therapy. We've been married for, for 10 years. I'm very much in love with my wife. But there's nothing wrong with it. And the, the reason we haven't is because I'm, I'm a tough guy. Um, <laughs> there are other reasons beyond that, right? But I'm like, I don't, well, we, we don't need that. We don't have time for that. Uh, it, it, would, it would certainly be beneficial. It's something we've talked about. And it's not, I, I, I've not been like, no, we'll never do it. But it hasn't come to fruition because I haven't been more proactive about it. Uh, and that's unfortunate. And that's mm -hmm. on me. Well, yeah, not just on you, but I, I also just think, our society just doesn't lend itself to making it very easy. Like, it it, you know, it's, I'll, I'll say that like finding a good couples counselor, you know, took time and energy uh, where we have um, privilege that we, our health insurance covers it. Right. A lot of people's health insurance doesn't cover it. Right. And that's even if they do have health insurance. So I think we just got to like lower the bar, the barrier of entry so that it's more ubiquitous. But I just wanted to just, you know, mention it's just because it's, it's, we prioritized it, but it still took a lot of like work to get into it. Right. Um, and there's a lot of times where we cancel our sessions because of whatever, like, is busy that particular right. week. When we do go, it's the type of thing we always are glad that we went. I'm going to shift gears, admittedly, a little bit here. But as we think about relationship maintenance, uh, I'm interested in date nights, whether it is, I, we have what I, and I might be stretching this a little bit. We almost have like micro date nights sometimes. It's like 8.30, 8.45, like they're down, it's quiet. Sometimes there are big things we haven't spoken about. Uh, because, you know, there, there's been a, a family emergency or there's been a situation and we're just, we're not going to get into it in front of the kids. And like, sometimes that's like the check-in, the meeting. Sometimes it's like Blair's got a podcast on and like, we, we just sit down at the kitchen table or we stand at the, the, at the kitchen counter and like we're eating chips and salsa and we're just BSing. But we haven't had the opportunity to do that until, till 8.45, 9 o'clock. That's the micro date. 
And then there is, you know, the more real date night, which you got to have somebody to watch your kids, of course. Right. Uh, talk to me about micro dates, new term, going to trademark it soon, like and, and dates. How often do y'all do it? What do you do? The, the, this idea of micro date, I like that a lot um, because I think we um, subconsciously have these micro. So, so our routine is that the, the boys go to bed and of course we're, we're both exhausted. And so we usually go downstairs in our house and turn on a show. Like we just finished watching, re-watching Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Something that's just like gets our brains into a, a space that isn't consumed by all the stress that we have. Um, and I think that's really important. It's we don't even necessarily talk a lot. It's just sort of sharing space and and uh, unwinding. We also uh, we don't have necessarily a specific date night each week, largely because of my work is sort of unpredictable in that way. But we try. We've been trying in earnest over the last year or so to 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 make space for more. Uh, macro dates <laughs> each week um, um, well that, that's impressive well that that's easy to do when it's not football or basketball season Fair. so uh as often as possible and um the last couple of times we've gotten in the car and we've said like what we don't we don't always have a plan we say what do you want to do and i think we'll sometimes we'll go for a walk somewhere like we will go to say shelly lake or something like that walk on the greenway um and then we go get some dinner and then it's like 8:45 and we're both like oh, you know I, what I really want to do is go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have the wherewithal at least at the moment to have the same kind of like event dates that we used to have. Um but I will say that admitting that to each other, being able to say I I love you, I love being here with you. Um, and I'm extremely exhausted, um, is healthy, I think. Yeah, we've gotten better at date nights. Um, I think as our kids have gotten older and, you know, so we'll get childcare and I I don't know, frequency maybe once a month if we're lucky, every maybe six weeks. Yeah. So we've gotten better at that and, um, it really fills our cup. I mean, it, it, having that connection has been, when we're able to, um, schedule it is really, really beneficial. Uh, we're not very good at micro dates. Uh, I think that we definitely could be better. And, you know, I'll just share, because I just thought it was kind of inspiring. We have some very close friends um, who are very good at micro dates. And so I just thought it was kind of like aspirational. They they do things like, one time we saw their minivan parked in the parking lot of like a Japanese restaurant and they just got like takeout from the restaurant and they sat in their car Hmm. and they were listening to a podcast together while they were eating sushi out of these like styrofoam containers. I just, one, thought that was adorable. Yes. (laughs) Um, But I think it's just a level of like creativity that we haven't yet tapped into. Right. Right. Like there's so many different ways to do these um, microdates for these connections where it doesn't, necessarily like require syncing up calendars and getting childcare and gathering the energy to stay up past like 9 or 10 p.m. <laughs> um, so I thought that was really cool. I, I would love for us to do more of that. We just haven't been able to pull it off yet. We would love to hear from you listening. What do your micro dates look like? Is it a picnic on the living room floor? Do you play Uno? Uh, is it 
I don't know, listening to a podcast or having uh, an occasional dance party in your kitchen uh, on a weekday evening. And for those of you who who don't have a regular partner or somebody you would go on a date with, uh, I'm thinking of single dads, uh, do you do you date? Do you dare date? How do you navigate that? Uh, we would love to to hear from you. Do South, D-U-E-S-O-U-T-H, do South at WUNC.org. Ben McKeon grew up in Wake Forest, North Carolina. He has twin boys who uh, are recently three years old. And Mark Shen is from California. He's got a son in the second grade and a daughter in pre-K. A quick update in the name of disclosure, transparency, and as Mark said, flipping the script. We recorded this segment of About Dad Time months ago. Since then, I've started going to therapy. Just me, no couple sessions, at least not yet. And indeed, it has been a great benefit for my mental health. I'm Jeff Tiberi. This is Do South. <laughs> 